bring you greetings from the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ and from the Lord Jesus Christ himself. I am the voice of one, crying out in the wilderness of this world and life. Prepare ye the way of the Lord. Make every path straight. Prepare for the kingdom of God is at hand. Today, we shall be discussing eternal rewards. Having discussed the judgment seat of Christ last week, we now shift to this matter of eternal rewards, which basically is the essence of the judgment seat of Christ. To begin, I'm going to read two passages of scripture that will form our texts and from which we'll make comments. So let's go straight to the scriptures. First Corinthians chapter 3, I'll be reading verse 13 through to verse 15, and I'll be reading Mark chapter 10, verse 29 and 30. Let's read 1 Corinthians 3, 13 to 15. Each one's work will become clear, for the day will declare it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work, which he has built on it, endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. And let's go to Mark chapter 10 and read verse 29 and verse 30. So Jesus answered and said, Assuredly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my sake and the gospels, who shall not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. People will be rewarded for giving up certain things, for doing certain things here on the earth for the sake of Christ and for the sake of the gospel. However, those rewards are not eternal rewards. Eternal rewards are given in heaven. They are given to those who lived for God while they were alive on the earth. Eternal rewards are eternal. They are not temporal and definitely they are not earthly. They have no lifespan. They have no expiration. They have no renewal. They are simply what they are, eternal. They are forever. In certain instances, eternal life can be regarded as a reward in itself. As we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 15, the Bible says, If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. So eternal life will be a reward for such a person, even though eternal life is not a reward. But it will be to that person as though it were a reward because he has no rewards whatsoever. In Luke chapter 23, we know the story of the thief on the cross who asked the Lord to remember him in paradise. And the Lord Jesus assured him that that particular day, he will be with him in paradise. For that thief, the fact that he will live eternally in spite of all that he had done is in itself a reward. This tells us that it is important that we understand that it is not enough to be born again. You must, in addition, live for God. You must live as God wants you to live. You must live in the way that God is pleased. Otherwise, you won't even get to heaven, not to talk of eternal rewards. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 15, the Bible says, And he, that is the Lord Jesus Christ, died for all, that those who live should live no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. We are to live for him. It is as we live for him that will form the basis for our being rewarded eternally. Eternal rewards will be given at the judgment seat of Christ. We mentioned that last week to those who are deserving. Now, I need to 
make a statement here because salvation is for the undeserving. Nobody deserves to be saved. And that is why it is a work of grace. Salvation has been given to all of mankind. But if anyone were to accept it and receive it, it is for free. Nobody charges you for it. You don't deserve it, but you get it anyway. However, after salvation, you must do good works. Yes, it is true that we are not saved by works. We are saved by grace. But having been saved, we must now work out our salvation with fear and trembling. We must now do the works of God, the things that God wants us to do here on the earth. Let's look at some scriptures. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 to 10. Ephesians 2, verse 8 to 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his, that is God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in. So God saves our souls and prepares us to walk a work and walk in good works. In Titus chapter 3 verse 8, the Bible says, This is a faithful saying, and these things I want you to affirm constantly that those who have believed in God should be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable to men. So it's not enough to say, I am born again. You must also engage in good works after your salvation. For you to even do good works, you must first be saved. That is why, without the saving grace of God, we cannot receive the enablement to do good works. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 2, the Bible says, Elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in sanctification of the Spirit for obedience. Let me stop there. We are elect according to the foreknowledge of God in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience. We couldn't obey God. Anybody who has not received the salvation of God cannot, is not capable of obeying God, even if he wanted to. However, having been sanctified, we are now able to obey God. It is our act of obedience that brings us to doing good works. So good works are crucial, but good works just don't happen because I am born again. I must now submit myself to be sanctified by the Spirit of God. The sanctification of the Spirit goes there to do the work of removing the hard heart of disobedience and rebellion in me so that he can now replace it with the fleshly heart of obedience and love for God. It is this heart, this nature that I have that enables me to do good works. And that is what God has prepared the Christian for, to be able to do good works by reason of the Christian being open to his work of sanctification and Thus, being able to obey God and do whatever it is that God wants him to do. People tend to assume that all works that we do for God after salvation are good works and therefore eligible for eternal rewards. But that's not true. It is not everything that you do after salvation that counts as good works. We've discussed this one. We discussed repentance from dead works. However, you will recall that when we discussed repentance from dead works, we had mentioned the difference between good works and dead works. We said anything done without God's approval is dead works. Anything done that God did not initiate is dead works. Anything done that is not done in the power of God is dead works. Only good works qualify for eternal rewards. And these are works that are initiated by God, inspired by God, implemented by God. They are approved and authorized by God. 
When we discussed those things, I made a statement to the effect that nobody can do a work that is acceptable to God except God himself. And how does he do it? He indwells us and does the work himself through us. So he, first of all, does the work in us and then does the work through us. And whatever now happens as a result is called good works. In Acts chapter 10 verse 38, the Bible says, How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Ghost and with power, who went about doing good and healing all that were oppressed of the devil, for God was with him. Even the Lord Jesus Christ, even though he is God, when he came in human form, he was flesh. And so he had to be anointed with the Spirit of God to indwell him as it were, to direct him, to lead him, to guide him, so that he could do good works. He could do works that was acceptable. So when it was time to go to the cross, his flesh would not be able to override the will of God for his life. So we must understand that when we talk of eternal reward and good works, we are speaking of the works that are initiated by God, inspired by God, implemented by God, approved and authorized by God. You recall in Matthew chapter 7, verse 21 to 23, the Lord Jesus Christ said that it is not everybody who calls me Lord, Lord, who will enter into the kingdom of God, but those who do the will of his Father in heaven. He said in that day, many will come to him and say, Lord, but we prophesied in your name. We cast out devils in your name. We walked wonders, miracles in your name. So then I will say to them, depart from me, you that did lawless things, that acted without authority. So it is not so much as I'm preaching, I'm casting out demons, I'm doing this, I'm doing that. No, it is what did God ask you to do? That is the basis of your reward. Good works thus become the yardstick for eternal rewards. I go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 3 again, and this time I read verse 12 to 14. It says, Now if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become clear, for the day will declare it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work which he has built on it endures, he will receive a reward. And you can see the way they classify it. There is work of gold, work of silver, work of precious stones. These three things I mentioned now get better with fire. So as the fire is burning these works, they get better and better. They shine brighter. They become more brilliant. But when we talk of wood, hay, and straw, these things are destroyed by fire. So our good works could be work of gold. It could be silver. It could be precious stone. It could be wood. It could be hay. It could be straw. If it is wood, hay, and straw, it is burnt up. If everything you did is burnt up, you yourself will be saved. It will be as though the fire spared you. And that's why I said at the beginning that eternal life under such a circumstance can by itself be a reward. Because even though you don't have a reward, the fact that you are living eternally is a reward in itself. We already discussed also the parameters for judging our works. We talked about motive. What is the motive for doing the work? Is it out of love for God? Is it out of love for others? If it is a selfish motive, it does not count. It is a work of wood, hay, and a stubble. It's just a work that will be destroyed by fire. But if the motive for doing that work is your love for God, if it is your love for other people, if it is because you want to see the kingdom of God expanded, not because there's a personal gain attached to it somewhere, or because a member of your family is benefiting from it somewhere, then it is a work of gold, silver, and precious stone. Then we spoke about obedience as another parameter that is going to be used. Was your obedience complete or was it incomplete? 
Was your obedience prompt or was it delayed? Was that procrastination? Was your obedience wholehearted or was it half-hearted? If it was incomplete, if there was procrastination or delay, and if it was done half-heartedly, it is a work of wood, hay, and straw. It will not count. It will be burnt up by fire. But if your obedience was complete, was prompt, and was wholeheartedly done, then it is a work of gold, silver, and precious stone. Then we are going to look at the means. How did you do it? What did you use to do it? If you didn't do the work in the power of the Holy Spirit, it is a work of wood, hay, and straw. It will be burnt up. The work of God must be done in the power of the Holy Spirit. If you read the scripture, you discover that the Lord Jesus Christ, his conception was by the Spirit. His birth was by the Spirit. Everything about his life was by the Spirit. Even his death on the cross. The Bible says he gave up the ghost by the Spirit. Everything was by the Spirit. That is why he was highly exalted. That is why he occupies a special place. So what is the means of doing it? By the Spirit of God. Remember the Lord Jesus Christ told his disciples. He said, tarry ye in Jerusalem until ye be endued with power from on high. Because without the Holy Spirit, anything they were doing would count for nothing. And they needed the Holy Spirit to do the work of God. Another thing that is also going to be checked, which we discussed last week, is did you do it by faith or did you just do it? Because whatever is not of faith, the Bible says, is sin. So the work of God that is not done by faith is accounted as sin. And so we must do the work of God in the power of the Holy Spirit and by faith. A classic case of motive, obedience, means, and so on and so forth can be found in the case of Ananias and Sapphira, his wife. I'll read from Acts chapter 4 because there's something we want to draw out there. And then we'll go to chapter 5. We'll just continue. It's basically a continuation. Acts chapter 4 verse 36. And Joseph, or Hussein, however you want to pronounce it, who was also named Barnabas by the apostles, which is translated son of encouragement, a Levite of the country of Cyprus, having land, sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Then we go to chapter 5. But a certain man named Ananias with Sapphira, his wife, sold a possession and he kept back part of the proceeds. His wife also being aware of it and brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the price of the land for yourself? While it remained, was it not your own? And after it was sold, was it not in your own control? Why have you conceived this thing in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. Then Ananias, hearing these words, fell down and breathed his last. So great fear came upon all those who heard these things. And the young men arose and wrapped him up, carried him out and buried him. Now it was about three hours later when his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter answered her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. She said, yes, for so much. Then Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. Then immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. Then the young men came in and found her dead and carrying her out, buried her by her husband. I mean, this was instant judgment. It is possible that they were motivated by Barnabas's giving, who sold his land and gave everything. Ananias and Sapphira, they did not want to give everything, but they wanted to give the impression that they were giving everything. So their motive was wrong. There was nothing wrong in giving whatever they wanted to give, but they lied about how much they were giving. They didn't need to lie. The land is yours. It's your property. The money is yours. When you sold it, the money was your own. So if you wanted to give only half, that's all you would give. 
Don't let anybody put you under pressure when it comes to give. Whatever you are happy to give, give and be happy with it. The Bible says God loves a cheerful giver. He says it is not so much the giving, but a willing heart that God is looking at. These people were unwilling. They were there for a different reason. It is possible that they did what they did out of envy and jealousy. Maybe because Barnabas was getting prominence for his activity and the kind of thing that he was doing. And they wanted to compete with that. There's no place for competition in Christendom. Their work, their selling, their everything they did, did not come from God. It came from their own desire to be noticed, to be appreciated, to be given a nickname, whatever it is. Maybe to be given a title. I don't know. If that is how you have been doing, you better repent. Their actions were deceptive. They were evil. They were selfish. And they were laden with falsehood and selfish ambition. In 1 Samuel chapter 16, when Samuel went to the house of Jesse to anoint a king and he thought that it was a matter of stature, God made this statement to Samuel. Do not look at his appearance or at his physical stature because I have refused it. For the Lord does not see as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. In the case of Ananias and Sapphira, God looked at the heart. What God is going to look at in passing judgment is going to be the state of our heart. That is why, number one, if you are not born again, forget it. You're not getting anything. You're not even going near him because your heart is not right with God. But when your heart is right with God, if you still allow evil machinations to come in and be clouded, then you have problem. That is why we teach the crucifixion of the flesh, crucifying the old nature. I know some preachers have said that you cannot crucify it, that you can try and pacify it. That's not what the Bible teaches. The Lord Jesus Christ was not pacified. He was crucified. And so in crucifying the flesh, we are saying that we died with Christ. If Christ was pacified, that means he didn't die. Then we can pacify the flesh. The flesh is such an unruly evil. The only way to deal with it is to kill it. If you don't crucify the flesh, you are most likely going to end up with works that will not count for eternity. You may be born again, but you will have no works to show in eternity. And that would be a very sad thing because you will see other people excited about what God has done for them, about the gifts that they have received, and you will have no gift, even though you are better off than those who will be going to hell. But at least you know that you are in heaven. That brings me to a very crucial part concerning eternal rewards. There are three kinds of eternal rewards. The first are what the Bible terms as inheritances or inheritance in first peter chapter 1 verse 3 to 5 blessed be the god and father of our lord jesus christ who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of jesus christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that does not fade away reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. An inheritance is something that you receive from your father. An inheritance is something that is given to a child of God. And every child of God gets one portion of the inheritance. If we look at the way the Jews conduct their transactions, which is how we have it in the Bible, when an inheritance is to be given, the firstborn son gets a double portion and the other children get a portion each. So, for example, if a man has 10 children, he will share out his estate into 11 portions. He will give two to the firstborn and then one each to the other children. Each one gets an equal portion. If a man had, say, 
three children. He will share this property into four parts. He will give two to the firstborn, and then the others will take one each. Let's look at Luke chapter 15, verse 25 to 32. This is the parable of the prodigal son who took his own portion and left. He was the younger son, so the elder son had a double portion. But let's read from verse 25. After the son had come in and they had fitted him, the older son now returns. We know the story. The older son now returns from the field and he meets a joyous occasion in the house. And let's read it from 25. Now his older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come. And because he has received him safe and sound, your father has killed the fatted calf. But he was angry, that is, the older brother was angry, and would not go in. Therefore his father came out and pleaded with him. So he answered and said to his father, Lo, these many years I have been serving you. I never transgressed your commandments at any time. And yet you never gave me a young goat that I might make merry with my friends. But as soon as this son of yours came, who has devoured your livelihood with harlots, you killed the fatted calf for him. And he that his father said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that I have is yours. In other words, that fellow has taken all his inheritance. So all that I have is your own now, because the double portion was his. And in verse 32, he says, It was right that we should make merry and be glad, for your brother was dead and is alive again, and was lost and is found. So what are we saying here? In this particular instance, it's like the man who gets eternal life but has no eternal reward. He's saying he squandered his inheritance, but at least he's back alive. He was lost, but he's found. You, however, on the other hand, you have the inheritance. So why are you getting upset? He doesn't have any inheritance. All he has is eternal life. So every Christian who has not squandered his inheritance, who has not done works that will be destroyed, is going to get one portion of the inheritance, every Christian, one portion of the inheritance. However, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the firstborn, gets a double portion. So we equally each get a portion. Whether you were a general overseer or you were a floor member or whatever, as long as you got to heaven, you are getting a portion of the inheritance, provided you didn't squander it by living a reckless and careless life, where all you had left was just eternal life. Then you get a portion. Otherwise, it's lost. Our inheritance, the Bible tells us in First Peter chapter 1, verse 4, the inheritance is incorruptible, that you cannot corrupt it. You cannot change it. You cannot mine it. You cannot destroy it. It is undefiled, that it, it is pure, and it does not fade away. It doesn't go with fashion. It's eternal. It is reserved in heaven. If you go to some parties, they have tables with the names of the dignitaries put on it and by the chair. So when you go into such a gathering, you look for the table with your name placed opposite a particular chair. Then you sit on that chair. That is your seat. In the same way, your inheritance is reserved for you. Your name is written on it. Nobody is going to take your inheritance. It is reserved. It's kept for you. And look at verse 5. He says, who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. God is doing everything possible to make sure that you come and receive the inheritance. He's watching over you here on the earth. He's protecting you. All you need to do is follow his leading and you will not run into trouble. The second thing that is an eternal reward are the mansions. In John chapter 14, verse 2 and 3, the Lord Jesus Christ said, when he was about to leave, as he was giving his parting shots to his disciples, in my father's house 
are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. So that is a statement of truth. It's not a parable. There are many mansions. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. That where I am, there you may be also. So there are the mansions. Every Christian gets an abode in heaven. Size may differ, but it is still a mansion and it is in heaven. The Lord says, when he has prepared a mansion for each one, he will come for that person. So if you are a Christian, understand one thing. You can only die at the time that you are supposed to die. And unless you are careless and reckless, your death cannot be an accident. The death of every Christian is timed by God. The Bible says precious in the sight of God is the death of his saints. So the believer does not leave the earth casually. It is because God is ready for him. It doesn't matter how young you were when you left, which is why you must understand that there is work to be done and do the work. I told somebody some time back, the person was going on about, oh, I want to get well. I want to do this. I said, look, if you use your sickness as a condition for not serving God, after a while, the question will be, why is this person occupying space? Let's take this person out so that we can get somebody else to do the work. We know that this person is no longer there to do the work because you are allowing your work to suffer by using illness as an excuse. Unless the illness is so paralyzing that you can't do anything. But if it's an illness that you can still function, go ahead and do the work that God wants you to do. I read the story of the wife of Charles Spurgeon. She was a sickly woman. She barely attended his meetings. However, even though she was sickly, she got his sermons written out into a book form and paid for it to be printed. And after it was printed, she got several copies and dispersed to pastors in the rural areas who could not afford to buy the book. That was something she did from her sick bed. So there is nobody that should have an excuse for not having a reward, for not being able to do something, for not getting a space, a mansion in heaven. There'll be no basis for that. So every Christian who pushes back to the work of God, remembering that the motive must be out of love for God and love for others, obedience must be complete, must be prompt, must be wholehearted, it must be done in the power of the Holy Spirit and by faith, you're going to get a mansion. That's definitely sure. Finally, we come to the third of the eternal rewards. This third one, we're going to discuss fully in two weeks' time. And that is the issue of crowns. So let's go to the scriptures. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 24 to 27. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may obtain it. That is the prize. And everyone who competes for the prize is temperate in all things. Now they do it, that is the athletes, to obtain a perishable crown, but we for an imperishable crown. Therefore, I run thus, not with uncertainty, thus I fight, not as one who beats the air, but I discipline my body and bring it into subjection, lest when I have preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. Now, in the days of ancient Rome, when they had the Olympics or the wrestling matches and other things, they wove crowns. It was actually round. They either used carnation plant or they used palm plants to form this roundish thing. So the term crown is that thing that is round, but is given as a reward to the athlete for coming first, to the wrestler for defeating his opponents. So that is a crown. Then you will recall 
that after they had beaten the Lord Jesus Christ, they wove a crown of thorns. It was a thorny branch and they wove it into this brownish thing and they put it in his head and pressed it down so that blood gushed out of his head. And they mocked him and said, Hail the king. Now, the reason why I bring that subject out is because there are two kinds of crowns. There's the crown of royalty and there's the crown of rewards. The crown that we're talking about is the crown of reward. The crown that they placed on the Lord Jesus Christ, albeit out of mocking, was a crown of royalty. They were mocking him for being labeled the king of the Jews when they, Rome, were in power. So they made a crown of thorns and put on his head. It was a crown of royalty. It wasn't a reward they were giving him. They were trying to say you are royal, but the kind of royalty that you have is not the kind of royalty that we have. The Olympian or the athlete or the wrestler who gets this woven raffia or woven palm or woven carnation gets a crown as a reward for their victory at the race. And that's why Paul said their reward is a perishable crown because no sooner than they give them, the leaves will wither. Unlike today that they have gold medals and silver medals and bronze medals. In those days, that was all they had. They had that raffia thing and that's what they gave. It was a reward. So Paul is saying that the crown that we are going to receive is not that perishable crown. The crown we are going to receive is an imperishable crown. It's not the crown that you put on your head and then after a while you see it disintegrating. This one does not disintegrate. In Revelation chapter 4, the Bible gives us a vision of what happened in heaven. Let me read it from verse 9. Whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever and cast their crowns before the throne, saying, You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. The crowns here are crowns of royalty, because the crowns that we are talking about will not be given until at the judgment seat of Christ. But in this particular vision, these elders already were seated before God and had a crown. In verse 4, it says, Around the throne were 24 thrones. And on the thrones, I saw 24 elders sitting clothed in white robes and they had crowns of gold on their heads. It's a crown of royalty. It's not a crown of reward. In the next two weeks, by the grace of God, we shall be taking a detailed look at the crowns of reward that will be given at the judgment seat of Christ. They are crowns of honor for the service that we have done. So basically, we need to understand and appreciate that Christianity is more than going to church. Christianity is more than being born again. Christianity is more than saying, I shall not die, but live. No, Christianity is more than houses, cars, and those things given you on the earth. Christianity is about a reward. I think last week we said that Christianity has an end game. The end game is eternity, eternal life, eternal rewards. The judgment seat of Christ, that is the end game. We don't walk so that we can show people that we are doing something. That's eye service. In fact, let me read Ephesians chapter 6 from verse 5. Born servants, be obedient to those who are your masters, according to the flesh, with fear and trembling, in sincerity of heart, as to Christ, 
not with eye service as men pleasers, but as born servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, with good will doing service as to the Lord and not to men. Knowing that whatever good anyone does, he will receive the same from the Lord, whether he is a slave or free. So your status in life has nothing to do with it. Whether you own a house or a car is irrelevant. It is, how are you serving? Are you obedient? Are you serving out of love for God? I hope you are not a man pleaser. There are people who work very hard when the pastor is there. But once the pastor leaves, they leave. You are working for a man, not for God. In verse 7 it says, with goodwill doing service as to the Lord, not to men. It's important. So I want to plead with us, believers, that being born again is what gives you access to the resources of heaven, the resource of sanctification, the resource of prayer, the resource of faith, the resource of grace to put on Christ and for Christ to do his work through you. Salvation is just the doorway. It's not the end. So being born again and going to church profits you nothing if you have no works to show. All you will get in eternity is eternal life. And that for you will be like a big reward because you escaped eternal death in Gehenna. So I pray that the Lord will open the eyes of your understanding. That the Lord will help you to reassess your role, your personality as a Christian, as a believer. And understand that you were called and chosen and saved so that you can serve God acceptably so that you can receive a reward in eternity. Until next week, God bless you.